Hello, and welcome to episode 98 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me for this episode is Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Uh, Carl and I are embarking on the second installment of the Tennis Abstract podcast book club. Regular listeners might remember our first book club pick, A Handful of Summers by Gordon Forbes, which we talked about uh, probably a couple months ago now. Uh, this was initially intended as a monthly endeavor. I don't think that's really what it's going to be going forward, but we'll see. So for our second book club pick, we chose to read a novel by John Updike called Couples. And the reason why we we chose this for our book club pick was uh, another novelist who's written about tennis, a guy named Benjamin Markowitz. Um, he put together a list of tennis novels for The Guardian, or ten- not tennis books, not just tennis novels. In fact, there's only one tennis novel on the list, and we'll get into that later, I think. Um, in this list, he mentions couples, and he, he doesn't really say a lot of overwhelming things about it, but since he highlighted it as a good novel with some tennis stuff in it, we, we, we read it. And Carl, it's fair to say that there was not a lot of tennis in this book. Um, do you... <laughs> I mean, I didn't expect a lot. I didn't expect it to be all about tennis, but did you have any any indication or any expectations of just how little tennis would be in this novel? No, I I did not. I got to probably the biggest tennis scene of the book and read it and thought, oh, okay, that's like a little taste of what I'm sure is to come and did not realize that that was, that was the peak. And from there on out, it would be referenced, but we wouldn't even really see a tennis court again, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's one of those things in the background that, you know, if you have a, a little bit of a background in literary criticism and analysis like like I do for better or for worse, like you can see how someone would write a scholarly article about how the book is really all about tennis, but you wouldn't really believe them. You'd think they were doing that just because they wanted to get another article published. Uh, but Carl, you told me you thought you understood why Benjamin Markowitz mentioned this book. And you'll have to spell that out for me because I'm not sure I get it. <laughs> well, I think, as perhaps we'll address in more detail later, first of all, the pickings might just be slim generally. And Markovitz has written two books of a uh, cycle he's working on about a family that has, uh, as one of the members, a professional and later retired professional tennis player. And so if he wasn't going to nominate his own books, there may just not be that many out there. So that, that maybe is the starting point and, and why that is and, and the extent to which that's true, we can we can discuss. Why then this one among the books that are much more tangentially about tennis? And, you know, I think part of it is that tennis is discussed often in the book. It actually, the book, the word appears 33 times, which isn't maybe as, as much as you'd expect for a book that's all about the sport, but means it, it appears throughout. It's a signifier for a lot of broader uh, ideas and themes throughout the book. And in particular, maybe in what's just a cliche, it, it's a signifier for relationships, especially between two people, uh, a couple or a would-be couple or a former couple, as the case may be. Uh, that those are the the units that the book is is so involved with, and uh, it also just has a lot to do with class and kind of the social scene in, in this community, and the kinds of activities that bring people together or that people use as, as an excuse to come together. 
So I, I, I can see how it can feel like a tennis book, especially maybe in your memory if you read it a while ago, because uh, I assume, Mark, if it's like you and me would like remember the tennis moments in books. If this book hadn't been flagged as a tennis book at all and someone had just recommended it as a novel to read, I might take issue with the recommendation afterwards, but I would probably note with pleasure each time tennis came up because that's kind of how I think tennis fans like like you and I go through the world. It's just, it's fun to see it mentioned at all, let alone over and over again um, in a way that's meaningful in a, in a book that's well-known and well-regarded like this one. It is kind of funny how tennis people are about that, that it's like these little treasured moments when our sport comes up because it always seems to be second to, to other things. And I, I, I do understand, I know what you mean about that, that you do tend to pick up on those moments since you don't really expect it. I mean, I think we have a lot of biographical information about John Updike, even though I don't have a lot of it at hand. And I've never heard anything about him being a tennis guy. Uh, but but clearly it's a part of the lifestyle that he's describing and maybe it was some part of his life as well. Um, so let, let's stick with Benjamin Markowitz for a minute here since you, you had him on your show, 30 Love, for a, two episodes, right? Twice? Twice for two books, yep. Okay, he's written two separate tennis books. And I'm assuming his his tennis books are more like tennis books, not just books with a little bit of tennis. That, and you already told me there's, there's characters in the book who are professional, former professional players. So, I mean, they're more of what you'd think of as tennis novels, right? Especially the first one. So in the first one, the, the character is playing at the U.S. Open and his family gathers in New York to see him. And the book ends with his first round match and not even the, the full match. So there's not very much tennis played, although there are lots of references to past matches and to other players, including like a fun scene in a restaurant where his brother is trying to work out his chances of winning the, the title and how he compares to N Nadal. Um, so there, I think tennis is like a central part of the book is much clearer in the in the second book in what's meant to be a series about this family um the player is now retired so it's more while tennis comes up in relation to talking about his past and, and bridging the gap in the timeline between the two books it's more about what would a retired tennis player's life be like what would it be like for him to try to find a place in the world in his 30s with a moderate wealth and um you know not a typical career path to that point so definitely less of a um of a theme but still i think you know strong enough that we can talk about it as a tennis novel and certainly more than than couples at least in terms of the sport itself do you think there are similarities between how markovitz writes and the john updike type of tradition i think we get a lot of uh non-linear kind of like thinking to to get inside characters heads and also a lot of characters the dialogue not really matching what the person feels and thinks in that moment and the way someone reacts uh, also not necessarily matching and and even surprising them and I mean I think we can go down rabbit holes of if we're really trying to make certain kinds of novels about tennis then you can talk about tennis rallies and 
how tennis is an expression of how we communicate with each other and ourselves. And yeah, I'm, I'm not going to really go there, but, um, I think, I think there is some, some stylistic connection that might've inspired, uh, this, this book choice and that, you know, would be, would be the kind of, um, writing that that you could see also find uh tennis appealing and fit into to that framework well i appreciate your decision not to go down the the road of, of every possible tennis metaphor there is um but if there ever is a time for that sort of navel gazing it is the book club episode talking about a tennis novel on the tennis abstract podcast so maybe we'll get there um had you read any updike novels before no and this I think I, I won't seek one out again. Oh, I hope you do. And I, uh, and you know, it's funny. I, when I, we started the, the book club concept, I, I, I thought and still think and hope that as we announce book picks and, and do these, I hope many of our listeners will read along with us and, and share their thoughts and, and hopefully drive some of the conversation in addition to just Carl and I doing it. But I just kind of assume nobody else did that with couples or if they started, then maybe they didn't continue that long. But but Carl, since you since you say that, and uh, if you think that, then I'm assuming any listeners who read the book are also thinking the same thing. Um, this is not a great Updike novel by any stretch. I've read, I'm not sure how many, several. Um, he's most famous for, well, it was a trilogy. I think he ended up writing four or five of the Rabbit books. Um, the first one is called Rabbit Run, I think. And that's a that's rightfully a classic, and it is shorter. It's... Um, Shorter, moves faster, it's better in pretty much every possible dimension than couples. And the, the character is a, is a high school basketball star coming to terms with being a small town hero who's no longer able to do the stuff that makes him a hero. I mean, I think he can still play basketball, but not as a high school star, obviously. Um, that's a great book. And there's a, there's a later book called S um, about... And a, it's loosely based on a true story, but it's sort of a 1980s era cult with a, a strong sexual component there. So it's similar in that regard to couples, which has a ton of, of sex related content. Um, but S is really funny and in a way that couples wasn't even trying to be. So if anyone reads this and thinks, you know, Updike is well known for being a great novelist and I just don't see it. Well, that's fair. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have seen it if I read Couples as my first pick either, but Rabbit Run and S are are considerably better. Um, so, so okay, you said, Carl, I wanted to follow up on this, that that tennis served as kind of a, a social signifier in, in the book. And so it, it's telling us something about the characters that you wouldn't get from putting them out on the golf course or having them sit around playing backgammon. And what do you mean by that to be more specific? Well, I guess I mean a few things from a just class point of view, they're at a certain level of wealth and comfort that one of the, the couples in the group has a tennis court where they often gather. I'm going to pause here to say this is a, an Asian couple and this is the second edition of the book club and the second time to just acknowledge in the podcast about it, that these are older books with some, uh, treatment of race and nationality and gender and, um, 
I guess, sexual orientation as well. Now that I think back on, on couples that, you know, just would not, um, fly today. Um, so this couple is not always treated well by the other couples and by Updike, but they, um, they do have this tennis court and it's this gathering place and there's just like a certain amount of leisure and, um, I guess just not having as many cares uh, that that the the couples in the book are always gathering for for pursuits. It's not always tennis. There are other sports as well. Maybe they do sometimes play backgammon, but tennis in particular is is um, often associated with a wealthier class. And there's also outside of class this element of this is one of the activities that the men and women can do together. They can do on somewhat equal footing. It allows for all kinds of different combinations in singles and doubles, uh, which can relate to all the different coupling in bed that is happening in the book as well. So, so that that's mainly what I had in mind. And then I think there's also, you know, so much in the book about how people are communicating with each other. And there's a, in this in the one scene where tennis is really played and it's significant. Um, people are communicating with each other with their facial expressions and their shots uh, in a way that that fits with with how they talk to each other in the book as well. Yeah, Updike unfortunately falls prey to the common misconception that doubles is full of these long rallies with lots of net shots. And we've probably talked on the podcast about how that's not really true. Um, maybe it was in the 60s with amateur players. I don't know. But that I, I, I'm glad you mentioned all that stuff. Um, that it, that it is a signifier of class, and I, I, I'm fascinated by this idea that, that tennis is what it is because it it is one of the few games that has, it's baked right into the game itself that men and women play together. And f- again, for regular podcast listeners, this is something I talked a lot about with David Barry, who wrote the book, The People's History of Tennis, and a lot of the early chapters of his book are about that and how, how it was a really pivotal decision to the history of tennis that that the game's organizers didn't give in to some people who wanted to have different rules for women. It's one of the few games that for the entire history of the sport, women played on this, the, the same court, same dimensions, same equipment, same, same everything except the ridiculous costumes that women wear for decades. But, um, but you can have mixed doubles in a way that you can't have in a lot of other sports. And in, in couples, the book, um, the men get together to play pick up basketball one of the guys has a basketball hoop attached to his, his garage or barn or something and there's a mention of how in the past one or two of the women have played but it's it's acknowledged that it's kind of a weird thing that that's what the guys do together but tennis is what everybody does together and i i'm wondering like Again, I, I, I said this before, but I'm curious what you think about this. Like, why not golf then? Aside from, I mean, you can't hit a golf ball at somebody or make a face when they're serving their golf ball. But, like, is there more to the difference between tennis and golf that is why Updike would choose to make this, the, those scenes tennis and not have his his characters get together to play golf? Yeah, I think two, two main reasons. One is just space and logistics I'm combining into one because they're related that you can have this court you know outside the home of one of the couples in the town uh, that it, it can be the central gathering place and realistically golf would be more of a trip and it would be more of a well who's actually got the tea time and you know how many how many are we and then I think the other part and I mean I, I just need to acknowledge how 
little I like golf, even as a fan of pretty much every sport. <laughs> so I, I, my dislike may bleed into ignorance here, but my, my understanding from many people who I love who love golf is that it doesn't as neatly tie into this idea of pairs and couples. That, you know, in tennis, while as, as Jeff knows, I like playing two-on-one Canadian or whatever you want to call it inordinately, Typically in this book and, and elsewhere, there are two or four on the court. And that just fits in so well to, to the ideas in the book. Um, well, I think that, if John Updike wrote a sequel like 20 years later with like different sexual mores to, to blast open, then, I mean, there might have been Canadian doubles. That opens yeah, up a whole other set of metaphors. It's not like that can't be sexual. It's just the, the, the neat title of couples is, is, is tied to the number two. But I'm sure troubles or whatever could work. Um, and I, I realize there's, there's a third reason because I've been flipping through like the references to tennis in the book to, to keep them fresh as we're talking. And I'm reminded just how often the tennis attire is brought up. And there is something sort of... Uh, sexualized and attractive about tennis attire, particularly tennis dresses, that isn't usually associated with golf. Yeah, that's uh, that is true. And the more I delve into the history of women's tennis, the more the more awkward moments arise where you read a newspaper story that has a really alarming number of instances of the word panties. It's like can everybody just stop talking about what these women are wearing? I mean, yes, some of the, the fashion choices were made to get attention, as they still are, but the amount of focus on that has just been relentless for, I mean, pretty much for the whole history of tennis, but especially since the, the very traditional stuff was cast aside and and women were able to start dressing in a uh, more comfortable manner, more showy manner, uh, if they chose. And since you mentioned actually playing tennis i meant to ask this earlier but have you played tennis with benjamin markowitz yeah uh we played before or after one of the episodes we recorded and he mentions in that guardian piece where he recommends books that he he's an awful player and one of his partners was worried that he was his style was so bad it would be infectious is is that fair <laughs> i mean it's been said about me um so maybe I'm not a good judge of whether that's fair. To me, or maybe one of you infected the other. I don't know. Yeah, right. Maybe that came out after we played. I my my recollection is that he was much more a basketball player than tennis player. I mean, he wrote a, a book about that, I think, um, and that he was good at tennis, but like very athletic for someone who is his level of tennis. So it made him a tougher opponent than his, just his tennis skills and strokes would suggest. Okay. That's all very diplomatic. It's good to know. How good do you think the players were in couples? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no, even if there were Elo, it would be a pretty closed set. So it'd be hard to extrapolate. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to tell from the, the brief descriptions. I mean, I, my, my guess is that we're meant to think that the players who are described as good at tennis can carry on rallies long enough to be, you know, fun and entertaining and, and make it an activity that people would keep coming back to. You know, I think that that's something about tennis more than some other pursuits where it just wouldn't really make a lot of sense that they would be so focused on it if they weren't, you know, able to have some good exchanges and some good shots. But 
yeah, I did picture it as being kind of a slow game, maybe because of the the era and the equipment, and the fact that they really don't play that much. <laughs> I think that, that <laughs> in the book, that's uh, well. That, but again, that that's one thing we can take away from the fact that it doesn't come up that much in the book. Is that there's a lot of pretty boring stuff in this book, and I mean, may, maybe I'm overstating that, but I mean, it's it's really talky. There's a lot of of people just spending the afternoon with the person they're they're cheating on their spouse with and a lot of that is very repetitious and they do talk about tennis as up to 33 times like you say carl um but they really only play the once and i do know people like that who talk about tennis a lot and don't actually get on court very often and maybe maybe that says something about it about them too that like it's part of their persona or they choose to have it be part of their persona but it's not really a priority, at least compared to the amount of time and effort they put into cheating on their spouses. Yeah, you raise a really interesting point from a narrative point of view, and it sounds like you have more of a legitimate stake, uh, legitimate credential to, to talk about literature in that way. That wasn't my area of study in any way. But, um, it, you know, normally when I think of, of narratives and, as you said, like, yeah, maybe you you, you show something once and then you, you 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 wouldn't show it again because you know you have other stuff to, to do and people can picture that that's a thing that keeps happening but actually there is a lot of repetition of some relatively static kinds of setups um, where there isn't really a lot of action even in a book that is very sex focused but instead conversations between two people that are very similar conversations they had in very similar settings previously or thoughts that one person is having that are very similar to, to thoughts he was having earlier. Um, whereas I think we probably could have stood to learn more about the characters and also just have more things happen by having different configurations of, of players um, at different seasons. And, um, you know, it's true with basketball too. I mean, you, you could say maybe there's a list of great basketball novels and this is on it because of that one basketball scene. And something really happened in that scene. And I, I think it really related to some of the relationships between the characters. And we never went back to a basketball court either, even though we had repetition in other settings. This is a long book to have so little uh, of these activities that, that are supposedly so common, as you point out. Yeah, it is. It's kind of a long book period. I remember the when I first checked the, the length, I mean, of course, Carl and I are reading on Kindle, so we don't have like the, the physical reminder of how fat the book is. But the Updike novels I mentioned, certainly the the Rabbit books that I mentioned earlier are relatively short. I think S is is longer, but not as long as this. If you Google couples, it says it's, I think, 458 pages. This felt like a lot more than 458 pages. I read the whole thing. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it, but it felt like... M it felt like at least a five 550-page slog through this like nonstop onslaught of infidelities without a lot of variation. Um, in, I mean, I wanted the variation to be tennis, but I would have taken other sorts of variation as well. Um, you mentioned basketball novels and like, I don't know the first thing about basketball novels. I'm not sure I can think of one, but I know a little bit about baseball novels and I know there are a lot of them. So let's talk about the I, tennis novels in general. So I, I think I mentioned earlier this this Guardian piece by Benjamin Markowitz that that sent us down this road. Uh, he recommended five tennis books, and now he's a novelist. He's promoting in this article his own tennis novels, but he only mentions the one 
tennis novel. And I, if you Google around for you know lists of tennis novels, compare that to other sports. If you Google for baseball novels, you're going to get like a list of the 10 best baseball novels of all time. And there's lots of competition for the spots in that list. If you Google for tennis novels, well, Google doesn't really know what to do with that. And maybe we can blame the search algorithm, but a lot of the, res the responses are books in general, not fiction. Uh, and there's only a smattering of results that are legit lists of tennis novels, and, and some of them are short and, and not very instructive. But let's, I'm curious why that is. So, Carl, do you have any thoughts about why I mean, why aren't there more tennis novels, or why isn't this a bigger thing? Like, what's going on there? I'm stumped. I mean, I, I would expect there to be a lot of books that have tennis as a character the way couples sort of did and, and could have done more with uh, because of what we've said about some of the things that that tennis brings as an element of, of a story. In terms of professional tennis, I think there's a real challenge in just how individual uh, the sport is. Like when I think of, of baseball novels, there are just so many characters who you sort of get for free once someone is is trying to make it at any level of professional baseball. And with tennis, you just, you don't, I mean, I guess you can, you can have two players who are dating and you can have physios and coaches and I don't know. I just think it's like it's harder to to bring in those other characters, even in um, Markovitz's first novel in the in the series that includes the pro tennis player. The, the only other real tennis character in the book is a uh, former, I think, coach of his and, and friend of his who had just died. And so we hear a lot about how important this relationship was to him, but we don't even know this person as a living person. Uh, so I, I think that that is kind of a built-in challenge. But from a, a more sort of social setting and amateur-level tennis, uh, it does seem like it it creates a lot of rich possibilities for, for story, especially for kind of a lighter story. It's it's interesting that you point out the difference between like the team sport and the individual sport because, I mean, thinking about how novels work, it seems like the individual sport doesn't have to be a problem so many novels are sort of like built around the individual quest whether that's like to achieve some goal like winning a grand slam or whatever or something less tangible like winning at life to be cliche about it and the one good tennis novel i can think of by lionel shriver i'm blanking on the name i think it's called double fault but i mean it's really a relationship novel but the two parts halves of the relationship are both professional tennis players and they're struggling to reconcile that with, you know, having a healthy relationship and all that. Um, but I don't think it's hamstrung by the lack of characters. And, and it does take advantage of having like a coach and mentor for one of them. And everyone has a family. So th those characters are are involved. I think a couple of other players on tour are involved. So, I mean, you can populate the world. But I wonder if if part of the problem is that there is no clear goal in the way that if, if you write... If you write a baseball novel or a football novel, then you can your characters can aim to win the World Series or win the Super Bowl. And in tennis, I mean, they can aim to win Wimbledon. I guess that worked for the movie Wimbledon. Uh, but it, it in the examples I can think of, it's more like the less tangible winning at life. That you know, yes, the main character in the movie Wimbledon wins Wimbledon. Sorry, spoiler. But 
he he more like gets to retire on his own terms and has a happy relationship with Kirsten Dunst. Uh, it's not just about winning the tournament, and that's a trickier thing to pull off. Maybe I'm 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 not sure. I've never really tried to write a novel, so I don't know what's hard or not to pull off. But it seems like that would be more of a challenge. Yeah, that that's that's a great point. And you, as you were building up to talking about Wimbledon, it was occurring to me separately, just thinking of other stories, uh, including a a play that uh, had the playwright on Thirty Love. Um, and and the mark of its book that like a lot of tennis stories seem to be about someone's last tournament or last match because that's that ends up being the climax that ends up being like the um, the version of the World Series that tennis can offer and you know in baseball and, and other team sports there's also just like the levels and there's a discrete jump I mean it's, it can be blurry because you can move up to the majors and then go back down to the minors and kind of be in between. But it's not as clear. It's not as fuzzy as, you know, if you play a challenger one week and a 250 the next, you know, like that there's a clear achievement of moving on up that yeah. can also be well, a goal. And that's such a big part in so many baseball stories. I mean, it's easier to talk about movies than books because they are more memorable and I've probably watched more of them. But I'm thinking about Bull Durham and Major League. And Bull Durham is, I mean, it's the minors. And... Major League is literally Major League, but it's a lot of these players who don't really deserve to make the jump to the Major League. So that's a really great point that in tennis, you just don't have that. You you couldn't really have like a madcap comedy about life on the Challenger Tour because, I mean, you don't really have the the core of people going from week to week. I suppose you do with like four consecutive Biella tournaments in Italy during the pandemic, but that's not a, a normal situation. And this is definitely the only book club conversation in the history of mankind that's going to mention the four consecutive Biela Challenger tournaments. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's so many so many characteristics of the team sports that, that tennis doesn't really have. But again, it seems like those, the things that tennis does have, that it has, it's just loaded with these personal relationship metaphors. I mean, maybe they're too obvious. I don't know, it just seems like novelists would want to sink their teeth into that especially since so many people already play tennis yeah well i'm thinking of by the way if anybody wants to prove jeff wrong which is always fun he just issued a challenge if you write a novel called four weeks in biela then we'll discuss it in the book club in 2023 that's a promise um even nonfiction books that are trying to tell a compelling story about professional tennis there is that kind of sameness. It's not always four weeks at the same challenger, but the, the cycle from year to year, it's not clear what the climax is. Even if you do really well at a slam, there's a small tournament the next week in another country. I think, you know, Julie Heldman's memoir, much of it is is her describing her life on tour. And it was a very exciting time in tennis. She had a particularly dramatic time and some of it dealing with great personal struggles. Uh, there's a lot of great story there. I found it compelling to read. I can't really remember any of the climaxes because it was just like, oh, I did. I, I this is the one time I beat this player, but then I lost in the next round. Or, you know, I did really well at this tournament that was a big deal then, but you don't know about now. Um, and it it just continued and continued. So, and that you know that was for a player who was a fixture in the top ten and um, had a lot of connections with a lot of interesting other players on tour. I, I just think it's it's tough narratively 
Yeah, it is. And that, that's something that I think is true of all sports. I mean, I, I, as a, as a kid, I just gobbled up baseball, baseball biographies. I read a biography of probably every baseball hall of famer who had a, a book written about him. And now when I look at those books, I just don't know what I saw in them because there's just chapter after chapter of like, he went six for eight in a series against the Cincinnati Reds. And he later told a reporter that he was having a tough time seeing the ball. I mean, it, whatever. It's just, it might not be as repetitive as a tennis player who's losing every week in nameless places, but it gets kind of repetitive. And it's, it's a tough thing about sports to build some kind of compelling narrative around that. I mean, even people writing newspaper articles have to deal with that, that somehow they have to define how an individual match or an individual tournament is unique apart from the tour as itself, or apart from the tournament the year before in the same venue with the same players. Uh, a lot of it does blend together. Now, one one novel we haven't mentioned, which I'm a little surprised, it's never going to be book club picks since we both already read it, but uh, on pretty much every list of tennis novels is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And that seems to be something that everyone will talk about as a tennis novel, and it doesn't really fit many of the the, the, the sort of categories we've tried to put stories in so far, that there's a section set at a youth tennis academy, I guess, that is pretty long and it is very tennis focused and there's a lot of tennis specific content. I mean, David Foster Wallace was a big tennis guy and did a lot of journalism, uh, very memorable journalism about tennis. Um, and then a lot of the book are not about tennis at all. I mean, it, you don't really think of it as a central part of the story unless you are a tennis person and that's what you focus on. But um, I mean, Carl, how do you think about Infinite Jest? I mean, is, is it right to think of it as a tennis novel given that, I mean, tennis was in there for a decent chunk of the book, but it wasn't central to the story? I think if you write a book called Infinite Jest and it it does feel like it pushes the boundaries of the finite and and the format and the footnotes and everything, it, it can be labeled many different books all at the same time and, and comfortably contain all those labels. So in that sense, yeah, I think it's a tennis book uh, in the sense of, is it mainly a tennis book? It's it's not. Um, but I, I agree with you that it's, it's a different kind of tennis novel. And I read it a long time ago, but a lot of what I remember from the tennis content is just how much Foster Wallace delighted in the the sheer like geometry and trajectory of tennis, like the very abstract parts of, of the game and, and turned that into wild new forms of the sport and, and had a lot of fun with it, albeit in, in the dark way he does in the book. Um, I mean, there's also some things about being a youth star that um, would be true probably if that character were a youth star in some other sport. But from the tennis part in particular, I mean, this was clearly a writer who who just who loves tennis for tennis. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is really fun to read. It's, there's a I don't remember the name of the game that the kids at this academy invent, but they play this incredibly elaborate game when they're not doing their formal training that involves like hitting topspin lobs that have to land right on the baseline. And I mean, it almost feels like Dungeons and Dragons for tennis or tennis for Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know. It's, it's and there's like a, a four page description or something. I remember when I when I first read the book, I was in college and this is before you could 
Um, you could just copy and paste and email to everyone four pages of a book you were reading since there was no Kindle yet. Um, and I, I actually photocopied those pages and sent them to a bunch of people because I was so excited about that one passage in the book. So even if it's not technically a tennis novel, it does have a special place in my heart. Um, Is it Eschaton? That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to say that, but it kind of sounds ridiculous, which is kind of the point, but it, I didn't want to guess wrong. But yeah, that, that, it, that is what it's called, and it's a really fascinating and funny passage to go back to. So, let's see. One thing that might tie some of this together that I wanted to bring up is this idea that for so many people... Um, not just novelists, but a, a lot of writers covering tennis. Tennis is the is secondary, and I've had a few guests on the show lately for whom that is true. Uh, where they're a baseball writer or a football writer, and they love tennis, but it's not their number one thing. It's not their top sport, or they can't write about it all the time, or they only play. Or it's just a, it's it's a, a theme that comes up over and over again. And Carl, you've done a, a a great job over the years finding people like that who have interesting things to say about tennis, um, even if you don't think of them as tennis people um, in the way that like a full-time beat writer would be. But I wonder if this is part of the problem, I mean, the idea that, that not that many people are defined by their involvement in tennis compared to the number of people who are baseball people or basketball people or even golf golfers. Uh, and that means that no one thinks, oh, I'm going to write a tennis novel to really capture that key tennis person demographic whereas you could definitely say i'm going to write a baseball novel because there's all this love of baseball out there and i think that th- that's the sort of decision that a lot of editors are making for for nonfiction. yes tennis books are getting published but i mean a lot of the writers i talk to like they want to write more about tennis and, and there just isn't the desire or the perceived desire for for all this tennis writing um i mean do you think there maybe is an unta- untapped market for for tennis novels or maybe tennis books in general, but because so many people are, they love tennis, but it's not their single defining trait. If, if there should be more tennis content out there for people who don't define themselves by that. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how efficient the markets we're describing are, but probably more efficient than, than my guess. I, you know, I do think that the characters and couples are representative of what you're describing in that tennis is like a seasonal thing. They're excited when tennis season comes. They play tennis or, or talk about playing tennis during tennis season. And then other seasons come and, and they and they drop it. And it's not clear if it's like, oh, the court is actually covered in snow or this other thing can only be played in this other season. So that's what we do. Or it's just obvious that you would never play tennis when it's too cold to wear your your fun tennis dress, but um, if if the market for actually like buying and consuming uh, books based on sort of sports allegiance is similar, then then maybe there's a reason that the the, the people who are tennis first are very passionate, and I think include the listeners of, of this show and uh, and your certainly your other- any listeners who are still listening in minute thirty nine of our <laughs> book club discussion of couples by John Updike. They're jogging and it's hands free and they're not going to mess with the feed, but they'll unsubscribe after. Um, yeah, no, that's you, true. The, the the key appeal of the Tennis Abstract podcast is laziness because of previous appeal that we no longer sustain. 
<laughs> well, that's true of so much. I mean, we're in good company there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I personally would love to to read more about tennis, whether it's you know short for short form journalism by some of your recent guests or uh, or novels by our great novelists. But um, I, I do wonder if like somebody whose whose interest in playing it covers a few months and interest in watching covers a few events is going to be a reliable audience for that kind of material yeah it seems it seems like tennis is in this awkward place between uh something you can be passionate about and just another leisure activity or just a participation sport versus a spectator sport and like my last guest last week matt futterman has written about running he's a very passionate runner and it feels like running is kind of in the same place there's there's a lot of running books out there but people don't watch running the way that they go out and hit the pavement on Saturday. Like people are runners. They're not track fans or distance running fans in the same way. And I mean, tennis is tilted more towards a spectator sport than running is, but I think there's some of the same similarity that it really makes it differ from the way that people are, are passionate spectators of, of other sports. And that is part of the reason why tennis ends up in this sort of, halfway zone where it's no one's focus even though a lot of people like it uh so carl final thoughts on couples um positive experience reading it are you glad you've you've read some john updike almost tennis novel I guess on balance, sure. I, I, I am so much happier to have read or listened to something or, or watched something when, when there's like a chance to talk about it afterwards with someone who's who's just gone through the same thing. So definitely uh, did not mean for that to sound like a plug for joining us on whatever our next book is, which I think Jeff will reveal soon. But I think like knowing that you, you'll be part of a conversation about it, uh, but whether out loud and audio or by sending us your thoughts before or whatever makes it more worthwhile. At least it does for me. And yeah, I'd never read Updike. I'm 41. I've probably overdue to, to give him a shot. Um, but I think I come back to if I just entered it cold without any regard for tennis, it would have been such a pleasant surprise to see it come up in, in lots of different ways throughout entering it in a tennis book club context, more disappointing. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like I said, it's I, I probably came in with higher expectations than you did because I have read and enjoyed other Updike books. And, and also, I the, even though I, I haven't read anything by Ben Markowitz yet, I, having the book ha- get a recommendation from someone like him who presumably has, re- I mean, at least read a lot of fiction, has looked for tennis in that time. I don't know how much tennis fiction he's read, but um, I expected this would be the cream of the crop. Maybe it's the problem with the crop, not not his pick, but um, I did come in with with higher expectations. But I do echo that it is more enjoyable to to, to read this stuff when when you know you're going to be talking about it, or you feel like other people are are doing the same thing, which I guess is why there's so many book clubs around the world. And it is kind of fun to all be going through this together. It isn't like I'm reading a whole bunch of tennis books and deciding which one will be our next book club pick, like. If we make a bad pick, we're discovering it at the same time that you, that, that you do if you choose to read along. And you won't know if we agree until we finally get around to releasing a podcast episode about it, which in this case uh, took a fair bit of time to, to finally get around to. And as Carl mentioned, I meant to say this at the outset, but the, even though couples came within a, a hairbreadth of 
killing the book club entirely. Um, we are continuing. So this, this was our second book club pick. And our third book club pick is going to be Days of Grace, the memoir written by Arthur Ashe. Uh, very important tennis book. Um, and I'm surprised because of that, that neither Carl and I have read it. I've, I've read a lot about Arthur Ashe over the years, um, especially a big biography that Raymond Arsenault published last year, the year before, pretty recently. And I'd recommend that too, although that's another six or 700 pages to tack on top of Days of Grace. So if you're really into Arthur Ashe, you check that out or at least put it on your list longer term. But Days of Grace, the 1993, I think, memoir by Arthur Ashe, that's our, our next pick. Um, and I'll put a little bit up on the blog about that book and maybe links to other stuff about Arthur Ashe. I mean, it's pretty, pretty hard to overstate how important he is in the history of tennis. And he's also, not only is he a good writer, but that book was, was co-written or assisted by Arnold Rampersand, who is also a very good sports writer. So I'm, I'm expecting big things from this one or very optimistic about it. So, Carl, before I call time on this episode, any final thoughts to send our listeners away with? Tennis is a sport for all seasons, and the game is the thing. So encourage everyone in climates even colder than mine to go out and not, not wait for, like the couples and couples do for tennis season. Uh, and, you know, if I can do it at 41 and Roger not quite as good as me at 39, then um, you don't have to be young, attractive couples in June in New England. Do you think they were attractive? <laughs> That's a great point, right? I mean, I guess we, we picture things. Uh, yes, I do. You don't? Not really. See, this is, I feel like we could do another 45 minutes on this. We're not going to, but it, it I mean, this is a whole other set of, of social issues. But the fact that, I mean, parts of the book are borderline pornographic. I think people reading this in 1968 when it was published would some of them would have thought of it as pornographic and if you think about that these days that brings to mind certain types of people who look a certain way um and i mean probably then too if you're thinking about pornography you're thinking about certain types of people but also we're talking about a time when there wasn't the easy access to pornography there wasn't the same like ubiquitous media in general so i mean I mean, this is getting way off topic, but there's all this research being done into why people are having less sex these days. And back then, it felt like that was kind of what they did. <laughs> I mean, it, one of the metaphors we could have dug into is, yeah, sometimes they were playing tennis, but mostly they were just busy cheating on each other. And that does take some time and energy. But I mean, what else were they going to do? They could have made more moral choices and probably better choices, but they uh, they chose to invest their energy into in, in sleeping with each other and hiding it from their spouses. And I didn't get the sense it was really because they were overcome with lust because the people they were around were hot. It was just because that's, I don't know, that's just what they did. Uh, and one funny thing that happens late in the book when probably most of you were skimming, if you made it that far at all, is there's there's a younger crop of people who move into this town, which is very, very slowly gentrifying. And they generally reject these couples. Like this social group we've been reading about for 400 pages, um, they're they're considered like insular and kind of degraded and not that interesting. So when when the couple that has the tennis court fall uh, falls out of the group for reasons that for some reason I won't spoil, uh, 
like the whole thing starts to disintegrate and it's it seems like these aren't people you really want to hang out with either because they're attractive or because they're interesting or or whatever it's just um yeah i didn't really feel like that was a, a social group i wanted to be part of i mean did, did you think like carl 1968 carl would have wanted to be at these dinner parties oh no but i'd want to be friends with the people who had their own tennis court uh for sure <laughs> But now you are the person with your own tennis court. Well, let's let's not mislead the listeners. It's not like a private home with a tennis court. But yeah, I mean, I uh, these these would not have been my friends. I think, although you know, I think partly we're supposed to start to see them as individuals who are pretty different from each other once you peel back some layers. But man, we are way off course here at the end. Let, let's just accept that we'll use our own imaginations for their, how much we'd want to hang out with them and how physically attractive they were and um, move on to the more substantive next offering in the club. Yeah, absolutely. So so everyone uh, pick up your copy of Days of Grace by Arthur Ashe. Another plug for future um, Tense Abstract podcasting. This is episode 98 and those of you who are really good at math might notice we're closing in on a big round number. And for our 100th episode, we're thinking of doing sort of a giant free-for-all mailbag episode. So if you have stuff you'd like us to talk about, questions, prompts, uh, I mean, send them in. Twitter, at Tennis Abstract. Uh, we'd love to hear your ideas and, and make a fun episode for number 100. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Carl, for joining me, as always. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, and yeah in another month or two or three we'll be talking about Arthur Ashe's book Um, check in later this week for episode 99 I've got a great guest coming on talking about her new book and next week probably episode 100 so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time